Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati, Javon Harley here your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Now, I've been curating my hashtag YOLO travel list lately. (laughs) And two of the things and destinations on my list are one, to witness the Northern Lights and two, to stay at an ice hotel. Well, today I'm exploring both with chairman of the board of the Ice Hotel. I mean, the Ice Hotel, which is the original hotel made of snow and ice and an agency owner and guide in Iceland who specializes in Northern Lights adventures. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. But right now, let's get into a little travel news. American Airlines is the first to roll out the technology and have partnered with biometric authentication provider Verifly. The app will be available to passengers worldwide starting January 23rd. So we've been talking about it for quite some time, but it's now a thing of reality. Julie Rath, the Vice President of Customer Experience at American Airlines, said in a statement, We support the implementation of a global program to require COVID-19 testing for travelers to the United States. And we want to do everything we can to make travel a seamless experience for customers. We've received positive feedback about the app so far, and we look forward to more customers having the opportunity to use it. Now, American Airlines customers can download Verify, that's V-E-R-I-F-L-Y, from their app store. And after creating an account, they'll then select their destination and upload necessary documents. Travelers will then be issued an activated pass they can present when boarding. The app is already available to customers who are traveling from the United States to Jamaica, Chile, Colombia, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Now, the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention will require anyone traveling to the United States to have proof of a negative COVID test prior to boarding a flight. The viral test must be taken within three days of a passenger's scheduled departure. This started on January 26th. The American Airlines app echoes several similar digital health passport efforts, including the one we talked about before. International Air Transport Association, or IATA as we refer to, which plans to store everything from test results to the Global Entry Registry of testing and vaccination centers. Now, according to Dr. Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, it is quite possible showing proof of vaccination will be required for travel in the future. Oh, the Tokyo Summer Olympics. Remember, it was supposed to occur in 2020 and was postponed to 2021 because of COVID. Well, There are now doubts and concerns about it happening in 2021. The Japanese government has privately concluded that the 2021 Olympic Games will have to be canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is according to a report from Richard Lloyd Perry of The Times. 
No one wants to be the first to say, but the consensus is that it's just too difficult, a source told Lloyd Perry. Now, personally, he says he doesn't think it's going to happen. Japan is now reportedly trying to find a face-saving way to announce the cancellation that leaves open the possibility of Tokyo playing host for a later date. Now, the focus is now on securing the games for the city in the next available year, which would be 2032. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm saying 2032. The Tokyo Games Local Organizing Committee said in a statement last Thursday, however, that preparations for July's event were ongoing. Remember the blimp? Well, I do. It was actually officially called the airship, but it was affectionately called the blimp. And I know a lot of us have a memory of the Hindenburg, and that's pretty shocking and jarring and not a pleasant experience that occurred in 1937. However, the airship has come a very, very long way. I actually flew in one back in the 80s with Virgin Atlantic when they launched Virgin Atlantic's international flights. It was a promotional flight that they did around the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. It's kind of just like floating in the air, basically because the blimp is filled with helium, much like a balloon, and you're floating. But there's a lot of modern technology, and it seems that airships are on the verge of making a comeback as a serious form of transportation. And with that, they'll bring an environmental awareness that could inspire future change in aviation as we look forward to the future. Just because of the way that it's designed, it would certainly have a lot fewer carbon footprints. George Land, commercial business developer, director of Hybrid Air Vehicles, a British manufacturer based in Bedfordshire, England, said, without even trying, it's very green technology. Because of the very low net weight of the aircraft due to the lifting effect of the helium to take quite a high gross weight over a long distance, you've got very low fuel burn. And the current or newer more modern technology airships in design. There's one called the Airlander 10. It will be powered by a hybrid of four combustion and electric engines. That hybrid electric power offers 90% CO2 reduction compared to other aircraft. The goal, however, is to be fully electric by 2030 and offer a completely zero emissions flight. Now, that's what I call green. Now, it has high standards of comfort and minimal noise. It will certainly be a luxury travel item. And in the market, it would be carrying up to 20 passengers and will form. Part of the initial customer base. I've seen some of the images and wow, what luxury. And with just the experience of that floating experience, of course, when I took it, we didn't go that high up. It was really just, as I said, a marketing flight that went around the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. So we did not hit high, high, high altitudes that a lot of international flights would take. But I'd be interested to see what that's all about because it really looked like a floating hotel. Another big question that everyone's asking is where will travelers go post pandemic? And USA Today published an article and asked different folks, professionals, and travelers and readers where their post pandemic trip plans will lead them. And actually, all in all, everybody's just ready to go somewhere. I know it's been a year since I've traveled, almost a year. 
my last trip internationally was February 2020. Right after I returned, everything pretty much just closed. And I know where my first trip is going to be, but I'll save that for a little bit later because I'm going to tell you all about it and it's going to be happening pretty soon. Well, what's happening on the list is Venice, the Greek islands, Turkey, and Croatia. Croatia is one of our group travel lists, but people are looking to 2022. There are some folks who are looking to summer and fall of 2021, but a lot of people are looking to 2022. So that in itself should tell you, make your plans now, because it's going to be on and popping, <laughs> as they say, for 2022. Paris is also on the list. And in talking to some virtuoso travel agents, France, Australia, and Greece, some folks are just saying, look, I'm going to stay closer to home. There's, of course, Mexico, California, and Hawaii. Hawaii is on a lot of people's lists. Some old favorites are high on the list, like San Francisco and the Grand Canyon or the Waimea Canyon State Park. Hawaii also, again, Hawaii, but yet again, back to Europe, France, Italy, and England. People are really just thinking also those bucket lists, far away and big trips like the French Polynesia Islands, including Tahiti, a little bit closer to home, Turks and Caicos in Dominican Republic and Bermuda. Certainly, they're going to see a surge, and reservations have already been made for at least fall of 2021 and first quarter 2022. So top five domestic destinations, Florida, California, New York, North Carolina, and Texas. That's in that order from one to five. And top five international destinations, France, Mexico, Italy, Germany, and Canada. Now, President Biden has signed an order mandating masks on planes. So the question is, will it reduce the number of in-flight fighting? That's been really the thing. And I think that maybe it will, because if it is a federal mandate, it is the law, then it means that the airlines or the company, they have support. And with that being said, the CEO of Delta Airlines has announced that the carrier will permanently ban passengers who disrespect fellow customers or crew. CEO Ed Bastian laid down the law in a memo sent to employees last Friday and shared with Fox News. The executive revealed that the airline has already added over 800 people to its no-fly list for refusing to wear mandatory face masks during travel, along with news of the company's latest policy. So again, if you can't display basic civility, you will be banned for life. Delta Airlines, and I think other airlines will start to fall in line for that as well. We have a new president and Madam Vice President. Yes, I love saying that, Madam Vice President. So I found this article that Caroline Costello put together, and it's looking at the hotels that are frequented by presidents. Nine amazing hotels where presidents have slept. Sometimes people like to go to hotels where celebrities have gone, and in this case, presidents. Kahala Hotel and Resort in Hawaii. Every president from Lyndon Johnson to Barack Obama has stayed there. The Grove Park Inn, North Carolina. Ten U.S. presidents have stayed there. 
Hawthorne Hotel in Massachusetts. President H.W. Bush is one of the luminaries there. Hotel Del Coronado in California. That's in San Diego, California. Benjamin Harris was the first U.S. president to visit the hotel. Since then, 11 commanders-in-chief plus British royalty have been to that iconic National Historic Landmark and frequented by Franklin Roosevelt. El Tovar Hotel in Arizona. You have seven presidents who have stayed there, and Teddy Roosevelt was one who frequented the property. The Waldorf Astoria, New York. We kind of expect that one, don't you? But Barack Obama stayed there in the property's four-bedroom presidential suite, and George H.W. Bush was a big fan of the Waldorf's cuisine, maybe the Waldorf salad. And Hay Adams in Washington, D.C., We all knew in D.C. that a lot of presidents and dignitaries stayed there, but it's built on the site where President Lincoln's personal secretary and former Secretary of State John Hay once resided. And it was used as Obama's temporary base before he moved into the White House in 2009. The Fairmont Le Chateau Montebello in Canada, former presidents Reagan and George W. Bush stayed there. The Awahni in California, presidential guests reportedly Franklin Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy stayed there. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you visit the website travelingculturati.com. Connect with me on social media and join the travel club. We may be on pause, but we'll be going places in the not so far future. And now Javon's Travel Minute. I recently came across a quote on my Facebook page that resonated with me. It's a reminder to travel with an open mind and to be open to new things. Now, when you travel, it's best to take the blinders off so that you can truly see the world from an honest place and without judgment. This attitude allows you to experience a destination with fresh eyes and really have an experience rather than just a checklist of attractions to see. Think of it as having a multiple course meal. Some courses you like, some you You may not. Some are more memorable than others, and some you want to try at home. This is the quote. Become friends with people who aren't your own age. Hang out with people whose first language isn't the same as yours. Get to know someone who doesn't come from your social class. This is how you see the world. This is how you grow. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. A winter adventure that is on my hashtag YOLO list is to see the Northern Lights, a.k.a. Aurora Borealis. And one of the best places to see the Northern Lights is Iceland. And I have Albert Okembarena, a mountain and glacier AIMG guide and tour leader based in Iceland on with me to give us the 411. Well, hello, Albert, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi there, thank you for having me today. 
Uh, it's such a pleasure and such an exciting topic. Last week, we did a show on winter jaunts, both based on snowbirds, those who love winter escapes or destinations, and snow bunnies, those who flock to where the snow is. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the Northern Lights, because it's such a phenomenon, especially a natural one. And I think that's why we love it so much. It's just all that nature has to offer. Iceland, one of the best places to see Northern Lights. Where exactly in Iceland can we see them? We normally hear that it's only in the Arctic where we can see the Northern Lights, but that is actually not really accurate. I can explain you why. So the thing is that the phenomenon that we are seeing, it's called Aurora Polaris. That is a phenomenon that can be, or Aurora Borealis, that is also, as you said, aka Northern Lights, or the Aurora Australis. So you can also see it on the Southern Hemisphere. They are more frequent at higher latitudes and places close to the Earth polar regions, like here in Iceland, from where I'm calling you. So normally, for example, there's one thing that I'm quite used to here, that if you are here in Iceland, you have to go to the top of the island, to the north. That's not really accurate. You can see in the northern lights even from Reykjavik. But you need to find a place without light pollution. So there's no need to drive hundreds of miles from the city. Just, for example, the Kleivavat Lake in the Reykjanes Peninsula, that it's like, uh, I would say, 20 minutes from the city center. It's a really good option if you are based on the, on the city, on Reykjavik. So in my opinion, you can just go even south. The south coast of Iceland is super nice. You have empty spaces, big valleys from where you can see this northern lights and it's just a blast, you know, when the aurora appears. It's really good, really, really good. I had no idea that you could see them so close to Reykjavik, to the city, because as you said, the light pollution, I understood that you had to really be far out. And with you yeah. being a mountain and glacier AIMG yeah. guide, I just <laughs> imagine that that's where you had to be, near the mountains or near the glacier. Can I ask you, what does AIMG stand for? AIMG, it's the Association of the Icelandic Mountain Guides. Ah, okay. And so are you actually mountain climbing? Well, uh, during the summer, yes. During the winter, a bit less. We are more on the glaciers and we are doing, for example, snowshoeing also. That's an uh, amazing experience here in Iceland. In my case, I have my own travel agency and we are focused on hiking adventure trips and personalized experiences. We are called Amarok Adventures. And we try to always show these hidden spots here in Iceland. So, for example, meanwhile, some tours bring you to, I don't know, to the most common places for taking the northern lights. As we have what we call the super jeeps, we can take you to see the northern lights to places where no other people can take you. So, for Checking the Northern Lights, you can go to a mountain, of course, but there's no need for doing that. Of course, the experience is going to be way completely different if you go to the middle of the nature for checking the Northern Lights. Well, I certainly can imagine that. So if you're going near the mountain or near the glacier to see the Northern yeah. Lights, then how are we getting there? How far from Reykjavik do we take a flight or can we go by road? 
No, you can just can go by road. For example, the closest glacier from Reykjavik would be, I would say, one hour and a half, uh, well, a bit more, two hours from Reykjavik that is called Solheimajökull. That is pretty accessible to the parking lot. So if you want to be close to the glacier and seeing the northern lights, it's really, really close. And if you want to go to Vatnajökull Glacier, that's a bit longer way to driving to the east. There's no need to take a flight. You can also take a flight to Höp, that it's a small town in the southern east fjords of Iceland. But you can just drive for it's around five hours and a half, if I'm not mistaken, driving to the Vatnajökull Glacier. But as I said, there's no need. You What you would only need to have for seeing a really good northern light is to have clear skies, also low light pollution, and a lot of patience. That's the key for seeing the northern lights, to be patient at the end. What is the success rate of those who are coming to Iceland to see the Northern Lights and those who actually get to see it? If I would like to lie to you, I would say 100%. (laughs) But (laughs) of course, I'm going to be realistic. It's a completely aleatory phenomenon, you know? So there's no 100%. No guarantee. uh, Yeah, no guarantee that you're going to see the Northern Lights when coming to Iceland. But if you have... As I said, clear skies, light pollution, a lot of patience, and there's a huge solar storm. Well, you're going to have really a blast. For example, there are some people that they say that the northern lights are not real, that you only can see the northern lights through a camera. Well, I can certainly say that this is not accurate. Because just one simple thing, on the ancient times, the northern lights, they, they have been seen since the ancient times, the Vikings saw the Northern Lights, the Inuit in Greenland saw the Northern Lights, and of course they had no cameras at the time. So it depends on the strength of the solar winds. If we have a solar storm that is quite weak, of course, it's going to only be possible to see the Northern Lights through our camera. But if there's a huge and strong solar storm, well, that could really be insane. You know, the whole sky, it's full of colors, different tones from green to red to blue, purple. It depends on the gases that we are having and the altitude of the where these solar winds are. But it can be a really huge spectacle, something that you will never forget. So tell us what that experience is really like when you're setting up and taking a group or individuals on an adventure to see the Northern Lights. What is that experience like? So for example, normally I take the people downtown in Reykjavik and we drive around 20 to 30 minutes to the first location. Normally the good thing is that we, the guides, we are always in touch with each other. So if, for example, me, I'm 30 kilometers east from Reykjavik and someone else is 30 kilometers north, we are always in touch. If one is seeing northern lines in the north, I can just drive north because I'm in touch, I'm talking to them constantly. So normally we drive to one location that is the place where we normally think there is a good chance for seeing northern lights. And from there, we start moving. As I said before, if we have a solar storm that is weak, we can just keep moving during, I don't know, four hours, five hours, depends on what the client wants. But if we have a strong solar storm, we can just be 
in the same place during three hours, like freaking out, you know? I mean, the first time I saw another light, I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? And the first time I saw a big northern light, it was maybe 10 years ago, something like that. And I was kind of afraid, you know, because it's a phenomenon that you are not used to. If you are walking around the city and you see a small green tones in the, in the sky, it's like, yeah, northern lights. But when you're out in the nature and you see this huge northern light moving on top of you really fast. And even some people, we claim to hear noises. And when I say that we claim, it's because in my case, this is true. I've heard like cropping sometimes, you know, a couple of times, like this haven't been proved by the science yet. And they say that it's some phenomenon that some people they can hear. I've heard this, but not everyone can hear this. It sounds like an otherworldly experience. Definitely. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) And it's definitely on my list. And I know that there's no guarantee, but how do we increase our chances? What are those tips that we need to do to increase our chances when we're planning our adventure? Well, of course, if you are in a place without light pollution, that would give you like 100 points for having a blast with the northern lights. Better in the south or the north, it actually doesn't matter. There's not such a big distance between the south and the north of Iceland. And it's possible to see from both places. But what we really, really, really need to be sure is to check constantly a couple of websites where we can see the chances of seeing the northern lights. One, it's called Weather. That is the weather forecast website here in Iceland. And we actually have one part inside the weather forecast website just for northern lights and another one for volcanic eruptions. So we are quite special in that way. And there's another website that is really good that is called Aurora Forecast that I used a lot when I'm with the people. But yeah, so what we need to have for sure, it's first sky clarity. So we need to make sure there are no clouds, that we are able to see the stars perfectly. I always recommend also, if there is possible not to have a full moon, because if we have full moon, we are going to have a bit of light pollution. Also, we need to have a huge solar storm. For example, it depends where you are. If you are in Iceland, the solar storms are measured with a level from zero to nine. And you can, for example, see this on both websites, as I said before. A level three or four over nine is completely enough to see in Iceland. In other places, like for example, Oslo in Norway, you will need a higher level, like eight over nine or something like that. But even in Svalbard, that is on the north-north, even like northern, there are some islands close to the North Pole. So you only need like a level two or something for seeing a northern light. So it's quite easy to see a northern light over there. So uh, yeah, also light pollution, as I said, we need to try to find a place with no city lights and if it's possible without the moonlight and patience, as I said before, that's the key. What is that difference as you were mentioning different places and the different levels that you need to see the Northern Lights? What is determining that difference in those levels? Is it altitude, just overall location? Yeah, so if you want, actually, I can explain a bit 
what are the northern lights? Because I think if I explain this, we are going to understand this a bit more. So northern lights, for you to, to understand, of course, is a natural phenomenon that is created when a cloud of gas that is ejected from the surface of the sun reaches the earth. Okay, and it collides with the magnetic field that we have around the Earth. And this collision causes complex changes in the tail. So this creates currents of charged particles that are boosted into the upper atmosphere and they crash against the gaseous atoms. So the Northern Lights can have different colors and patterns and this came because of the kind of atoms energized. So the colors, for example, depend on the altitude. So the blue and red tones occur below, I think in miles would be something like 60 to 150 miles, more or less, up in the atmosphere of the Earth. And so that then determines the different colors that you get, because the pictures or images that I see, you typically see the blues and the greens, but you occasionally see some other colors as well. Exactly, exactly. Ah, okay. So, so interesting. And as you said, a natural phenomenon. Now, what's the best time of year to see the Northern Lights in Iceland? People normally say winter months. Okay. But as the Northern Lights are a natural phenomenon, of course, they are not occurring just during the winter time. Actually, the Northern Lights occur during the whole year around. The thing is that, for example, here in Iceland, during the summertime, we have almost 24 hours of daylight. So if we have daylight, there's no chance of seeing the northern lights. So as much dark hours we have, better chances of being surprised by the northern lights. So, for example, I've seen northern lights in the Icelandic highlands during the first week of September and even during the last week of August. But in my personal opinion, my favorite season or, or the season I always recommend to my family and friends to see the Northern Lights from early November to March. That is the time when we have more night hours. And something that is quite good is that on the following years, we are going to have like increase of this Northern Lights strength. So it is expected that from last winter, I would say, yeah, I think it was last winter. From last winter to the following 11 years, it's going to be a blast. We are going to enjoy the Northern Lights a lot on the following years. Oh, sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever you want. <laughs> we have to increase our chances any way we can. And as I said, it is definitely on my YOLO uh, yes. list. Now, where do we stay? Are there particular hotels and areas that are best known for Northern Lights? And then, of course, the other activities of Iceland, because you have to plan other things because yes. it's not guaranteed. So you want to make a trip of it. When talking about the hotels or guest houses, I always try to recommend staying away from the city. If you can stay in the south coast, for example, there are so many small towns or even some small guest houses, if you prefer. For example, Kvarsvetler, it's a really good town that is on the south. It's just, I don't know, like one hour and a half driving from Reykjavik. It's not so far. And if you want to go north, of course, Isafjörður in the West Fjörður that is called the Western Fjords. It's a super top location. Uh, Silfjörður in the north 
fjords of Iceland. It's a super nice location too for being. If you want to go to some specific hotels or guest houses, try as much as isolated the best. Because if you do that, you can guarantee that the conditions are good. You're going to get this good chances for seeing the Northern Lights. Yeah, and you're going to be sure. away from the city lights, which is that yeah. light pollution that, that you so often talked about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, you, you own a travel agency, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. Amarok. Is that how Amarok. it's going Amarok Adventures. And exactly. Iceland is definitely one of your premier destinations, but you also mm-hmm. offer adventure travels to other destinations as well. Yes, exactly. So we are based in Iceland and we mostly operate the whole year here, but we also offer different trips. For example, we also operate with some local sailboat in the Faroe Islands, that is just one hour and a half flying from here. So it's quite fast for us. And we normally sail the whole Faroe Islands and we hike the different fjords and to different locations. So it's quite a hiking and adventure trip. And also we do, for example, Nepal, that is far away from Iceland, of course. And, but yeah, mostly we are focusing trips here in Iceland. And what are some of those other adventures that you specialize in? Mm-hmm. In Iceland, you mean? Yes. Yeah, so for example, we do, during the winter time, we try to do the most classical tours here in Iceland, but we try to make a twist to include some completely hidden places, hidden spots, to go to places that are only are known by locals. We normally, for example, during the winter tours, we visit the blue ice caves in the Breida Mercuriokut Glacier, that is part of the Vatnajökull Glacier, the biggest glacier here in Europe. Also, we do some snowshoeing in Thorsmerk, that is the Valley of the God of Thunder, Thor, the one from the Marvel movies. No, just kidding. <laughs> but this place is just amazing. I mean, it's known that even during the summer months, it's only accessible using uh, large super jeeps. So you would need like big cars for going there during the summer. During the winter, we need even bigger cars. We need big tires. Normally, we try to travel in, in pair with another guy because it's quite often to get stuck in the snow. We need to cross rivers to get to this place. It's kind of amazing experience to do if you are coming in during the winter time to Iceland. And during the summer, we try to focus more on this kind of unbeaten places in Iceland that are called the highlands of Iceland, or as we call in Icelandic, Fjallavak. That is, it would be translated like behind the mountains. That is a place out of this world. I would say it's even for me that I'm really used to go to this place. It's kind of like out of a science fiction movie, you know, like this brilliant red mountains surrounded by green volcanic craters filled up with turquoise water. And we spend like days there without seeing anybody. It's fantastic. It sounds phenomenal. And the place again? Well, it's all the Icelandic highlands or Fjallavak. For example, there's one place that is well known that is called Landmannalaugar. That would be written like Landmannalaugar, but it's Landmannalaugar. It's awesome. It's rhyolite mountain valley surrounded by lava fields, volcanic craters with natural hot pool 
where you can take a bath. That it's amazing. Wow. It just sounds phenomenal. And, you know, all that nature has to offer. And that's really the thing that nature is really a performer. You know, she (laughs) performs for us and shows us all of her glory. And it's just there for us to view and to respect and to be in awe of. So Albert, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such an honor and a pleasure taking us on such a wonderful journey through Iceland. Thanks to you. It was my pleasure to be here today. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. Thanks for staying tuned with me. I'm Javon Harley, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. The website again, travelingculturati.com. Check it out. And while you're there, follow us on social media and join that travel club. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born from the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report on staying at the Ice Hotel. You know, sometimes when you travel, the hotel is the destination, and it can also be a work of art and ingenuity. Now, every year, when the Torna River in Sweden turns to ice, the ice of the river transforms to design and architecture, and voila, a hotel is born the world's first and largest hotel built of snow and ice. It's called the Ice Hotel. And on the phone with me to tell us all about it is Mats Svensson, the chairman of the board of Ice Hotel. Well, hello, Mats, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Oh, hello, and thanks a lot for having me. Well, I think I'm more excited to speak with you about it today (laughs) because I have to tell you, I have, I don't call it a bucket list. I call it a YOLO list, you know, hashtag YOLO, you only live once. And Ice Hotel has been on my list for quite some time. And last year has made me realize I need to start working on my hashtag YOLO list. (laughs) Uh, that's fascinating that you're saying that because uh, it seems like a lot of people have the ice hotel on their YOLO list. And uh, they actually tell us also when they're coming that, oh, we've been looking forward to this. And, you know, they can go on uh, how much they've been looking at the website and checking out what it's going to be like and, and so on. And so many people have been actually waiting long time to go there but finally they get it done and that's really nice that we're on that list we of course appreciate that absolutely now as i said the ice hotel is the world's first hotel built of snow and ice so how did it all start it actually started with a guy called Ingve Bergqvist, and he's still a owner of it not the whole but he's a part owner and he's also on the board and he's a real outdoor man that spends a lot of time canoeing, fishing, hunting, and all of that. And he actually lived in Jukasjärvi, and it was a summer destination. So they were doing rafting and fishing and stuff like that. And then he was, uh, you know, seeing the whole village being absolutely dead in the winter time. So he figured, 
it's cold and it's dark and you know everybody's saying it's cold and it's dark you can't do anything about it and then he figured that wait a minute if it's cold and dark we have to be able to do something about the cold and dark and then all the snow and ice and so on so he he actually started with just a little igloo and was renting that out and people loved it you know and then he figured maybe this could be big so then he actually harvest the ice from Torney River, which is absolutely clear ice, and it's a special river that makes it so clear, guys, so you can actually see straight through it, not like it's coming out of the water tap at home. And uh, so he started to build uh, a hotel built of ice and, you know, getting it out on the market, and now it has been there 31 years. It's 31 years that it's built up, and then when the winter is over, it melts down to the river again. Wow, and I want to thank you for pronouncing the city because I chickened out in my introduction. <laughs> I, I did. I had it spelled out phonetically. <laughs> How far is that from you know your arrival in Sweden? You know, you arrived to Stockholm and you just changed flight, and it's a direct flight from Stockholm, which takes one and a half hour. So this is uh, 200k north of the Arctic Circle, but once you're in Stockholm, it's one and a half hour away. And also some people these days take the train and then it's a night train. So you actually enter in the train in the afternoon in Stockholm and then you sleep on the train and you wake up in Kiruna, which is the closest, the bigger town. It's called Kiruna. And from the airport, it's just 15 minutes. Then you are at the ice hotel in, in Jukasjärvi. And it's actually... Some people, we pick up, if they want to, we pick them up with snowmobiles at the airport. So you transfer with a snowmobile. What type of visitors do you get? That's the funny thing. We get very broad type of visitors. And uh, they are coming from normal year, not the year like this. But the normal year, we have between 40 and 45 different nations that are uh, registered in the hotel. So it's a very spread audience. And some people, younger people, it's uh, quite a lot of marriages there every year that actually ended up with that Kiruna couldn't help us with having a priest because there were so many marriages. So we now have our own priest to, <laughs> to marry people that wants to do that. So that's younger people coming in, but it's also retired people that are doing a tour of Scandinavia or something like that. So. It's a very different kind of audience, but everybody is almost having it on the bucket list, something they really want to do. I can just imagine a wedding that would be so magical to have a winter wonderland wedding. But the hotel itself, I'm so intrigued by it. Is it 100% built of snow and ice? Yeah, we have snow and ice 100%. So normally you sleep there one night and uh, then you sleep on a reindeer skin and uh, the room is really big and uh, you, people tend to sleep better when they're sleeping with somebody. So even though you don't have your spouse with you, maybe a friend, so you sleep together. You sleep in sleeping bags in just long underwear and uh, they normally don't freeze people when they sleep there because the sleeping bags are really good and you sleep on a reindeer skin. Quite a lot of people are saying that they never slept better because it's absolutely silent. There is no fans, there is no electrical things, charge or anything like that that kind of gives a sound at all. So 
it's really, really quiet. And uh, then you, of course, have your hat on and everything. And then you, you just buckle up your sleeping bag and then you sleep there. But people stay normally three, four, five days. So then we also have warm rooms. So you can sleep in a normal hotel room or in a cottage. So you do one night in the actual ice hotel, and that is 100% ice and snow. And when then the spring comes and the sun comes up, we are closing the hotel because then it's starting to melt. So we are then having normal rooms and the cottages open. And we also now have an ice hotel that is open year-round because part of the ice hotel we have been chilling down with solar panels. So we have one of Sweden's largest parks of solar cells that we use to cool down one part of the ice hotel. So you can also visit there in the summertime. We have 100 days in a row with daylight all the time. The sun never goes down since it's so far up. So that gives us a lot of solar energy. So sometimes we also have to export solar energy out to the electrical system because we produce too much, (laughs) more than we need to cool down the hotel. Wow. And and I've been to Stockholm, Sweden before, and it is a little odd to be out at night at, well, at 11 p.m. at night and the sun is still up. That's That was very interesting. <laughs> and what's the most popular activity there at the hotel? The most popular is actually dog sliding. People really love to go with the dogs. You know, it's so much untouched nature here. There is basically only nature. <laughs> so people love to go dog sliding and you have maybe 15 dogs ahead of you and you're two people on the sledge and you have a good driver and you go out in the forest and you can go quite far. The dogs love to run. So they just run and run and run and then you come out and have lunch in one of the huts that we have out in the forest and so on and or by a lake or something and uh, people love that. So dog sliding is the most popular and then second comes snowmobiling. Of course, then the sound is there, but then, of course, you stop. And I used to say, let's stop now and listen to the silence. And if you then are absolutely quiet, there is absolutely no sound. Ice sculpturing is interesting because people think it's so hard to make a sculpture and so on. But it seems like when they're there, they get a block of ice and they figure, yeah, let's start. And it's actually easier than you think to carve into ice when you have the right tools. So then people can do the most amazing things. And I'm just really taking it all in as you're explaining it, because the sound of silence, for example, I just think that there is the sound of silence and it makes you reflective, but also just being out in nature and the activities and learning something new like ice sculpture. It just sounds like such a wonderful experience. And having both the ice hotel and then the regular hotel for the other times just really gives you a great opportunity to explore it all. And I think it's fantastic. So what is the season for the ice hotel? I know you said there's sometimes you can do year round, but what is the main season? The main season is December to April. And that's when you also have the Northern Lights, which is a popular excursion, you know, that you go out on the ice with dogs or snowmobile or so on and look at the Northern Lights. And it's a lot of Northern Lights appearances. There is little human activity. Otherwise, there is not so much light pollution here. So it's really spectacular when you see the Northern Lights. And that's also something 
people are coming for. So December to April is the main winter season, and then you have the June, July, August, September is the main summer season, and then we have the midnight sun. So then people, you know, alternate with the midnight sun and the isotel. So that's also nice. When this all starts each season, when they start constructing it, is there a ceremony? Yeah, it is. And it's actually quite fascinating that also because we actually have the ceremony when it's ready for the season and and it opens. And then normally there is a couple of hundred people there looking at it. But this year, due to the COVID, they had it on the Internet. So I think it's over 45,000 people now that have seen the opening of the Ice Hotel. So it's like we then realized maybe this is the way we should do it. Well, Mats, thank you so much. It's so intriguing. And again, folks, it's the Ice Hotel. And I'm saying the Ice Hotel because it's the first and the largest of Ice Hotels. What's the website, Matson? Icehotel.com. You can also see a lot of art because it's probably one of the largest art collections we have in Sweden. Private art collections is Ice Hotel because... Every year there is like 30 to 40 artists that is actually sculpturing in ice. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies-